I want to begin this morning with a, a new series of messages on um, what makes a great church great. And we're going to be talking from 1 Thessalonians about this, um, this, this theme. And I want to begin with this, this story about this man who was marooned on a, a desolate island. And after he had been there for five years, he was found and rescued. It almost kind of reminds you of the movie Castaway. Remember that? And Wilson and all that, you know. Well, as he was climbing into the rescue boat, uh, the curious rescuers noticed out on the shore that he, there were three grass huts out there. And so they said, we thought, we thought you were alone. Why, why are there three huts out there? And they asked him. And the man replied, well, the first hut over here, that's my home. And the second hut right there, well, that's my church. Well, the guys asked, well, what about that third hut over there? Well, he said, that's the church I used to belong to. That's what I belong to right now. I like this thought. It says, this is my church. It is composed of people just like me. It will be friendly if I am. It will do a great work if I work. It will make generous gifts to many causes if I am generous. It will bring others into its fellowship if I bring them. Its seats will be filled if I fill them. It will be a church of loyalty and love and faith and service if I, who make it what it is, am filled with these qualities. Therefore, with God's help, I dedicate myself to the task of being all of these things I want my church to be. Isn't that so true? You know, we always talk about that. But the church is only going to be as good as you make it. You know, Timothy Whitmer, in his book, The The Shepherd Leader, had this to say about cultural standards and the church's influence in these cultural standards. And this is what he said. He said, he said, this downward trajectory of cultural standards places increasingly greater pressure on the church as it strives to maintain the clear moral imperatives of the scripture and boy is that is that ever so true you know and and sometimes i wonder if we're winning or losing when it comes to that and here here's a very sobering thought about the church listen to this it says the number of churches that close each year is nearly three times the number that open no county in the nation, no county in the nation reports a higher percentage of church attendance than 10 years ago. That's frightening. That is really frightening. So the question I have is, what makes a great church great? What makes a great church great? You know, a man reportedly approached Charles Spurgeon one Sunday morning, and he said, you know, I've visited many churches these past few years, and, and all of them have problems. All of them. So, so I keep going from church to church looking for the perfect one. And so the famous preacher told him that he had many saintly people in his congregation, but it was far from perfect. You know, my, my church is far from perfect. No, no, my, my church is not the church that you're looking for, Spurgeon said. But if you happen to find such a church, I beg you not to join because you will spoil the whole thing. And how true is that? Wow, such boldness from Spurgeon telling it like it is. Because none of us are perfect. 
There is no such thing as the perfect church. And I think these words have been restated and repeated countless times. Someone even translated this thought into a poem of sorts. Let me, let me read this poem, this poem for you. I think it's pretty funny. I think that I shall never see a church that's all it ought to be, a church whose members never stray beyond the straight and narrow way, a church that has no empty pews, whose pastor never has the blues, a church whose elders always speak and none is proud and all are meek. Such perfect churches there may be, but none of them are known to me. But still, we'll work and we'll pray and we'll plan to make our own the best we can. That's right. You know, since local churches are made up of sinners saved by God's grace, there is going to be no perfect church. But I do think that some churches come closer than others. And the the church at Thessalonica was, I think, they were in that category. And all throughout his first letter to the Thessalonians, Paul praises the church for their their faithful work, their loving deeds, and their commitment to Christ. That's what he does. You might say the church at Thessalonica was a great church. And as you read Paul's letter, we discover what I would call several characteristics that make the church at Thessalonica a great church. So if you look at chapter 1, for instance, Paul he highlights four qualities, four characteristics that, that made Thessalonica a great church. And although our own, our own church may never be perfect, and I'm going to tell you right now, it's never going to be perfect as long as I'm your preacher. That plain, pure, and simple, it's never going to be perfect as long as I'm your preacher. I think that we can certainly come close by following the example of the Thessalonians. So what are the characteristics of a great church? And I want you to join me this morning and in this journey that we're going to take through 1 Thessalonians to discover what makes a great church a great church. We're going to begin by reading 1 Thessalonians. If you have your Bibles and you want to follow along, please do so. I'm going to read the whole chapter of 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. It says, Paul, Silas, and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians, in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace and peace to you. We always thank God for all of you mentioning you in your prayers, in our prayers. We continually remember before our God and Father your work produced by faith, your labor prompted by love, and your endurance inspired by hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. See right there, Jerry. There's a three-point sermon right there. Yeah, (laughs) brothers loved by God, we know that he has chosen you because our gospel came to you not simply with words, but also with power, with the Holy Spirit and with deep conviction. You know how we lived among you for your sake. You became imitators of us and of the Lord in spite of suffering, severe suffering You welcome the message with joy given by the Holy Spirit. And so you became a model to all believers in Macedonia and Achaia. The Lord's message rang out from you, not only in Macedonia and Achaia. Your faith is, your faith in God has become known everywhere. 
Therefore, we do not need to say anything about it. For they themselves report what kind of reception you gave us. They tell us how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who rescues us from the coming wrath. Wow, what a, what a passage. So I want to begin by sharing some characteristics of a great church found right here in the book of Thessalonians. Paul describes the first characteristic as an exciting and an energetic church. They were an exciting and energetic church. You know, there's a museum in Detroit, Michigan, where there is, they have this huge, this huge steam locomotive. And beside this complicated piece of machinery is a sign showing boiler pressure, the size, the number of wheels, the horsepower, the length, the weight, and, and, and much, much more. But the bottom line on that sign is this. It indicates that 90% of the power generated was used to move the locomotive and only 10% was used to pull the whole load. Now, Jesse, I don't know if that's right or not. You would know more about locomotives than I do, but, but that's what it said. That's what the sign said. And I want to tell you something, guys. Some churches are just like that. Because in many churches, 10% of the members do about 90% of the work. It's like this little boy in Sunday school, after hearing his dad preach on justification, sanctification, purification, and all those other Asians, the, the minister's son was ready when his Sunday school teacher asked if anybody knew what procrastination meant. And the little boy said, I'm not sure what it means, but I know that our church believes in it. <laughs> well, let me tell you something. The Thessalonians, they didn't believe in that. They, they were hardworking, they were excited, they were energetic. And Paul writes in 1 Thessalonians 2, chapter 1, verses 2 and 3, there he says, we, we always thank God for, for all of you and pray for you constantly. You know, as we pray to our God and Father about you, we, we, we think of your faithful work and your loving deeds and your enduring hope that you have because of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what he tells them. Here and all throughout his letter, Paul praises the church in Thessalonica for their activity and for their work and for their deeds, their deeds of love. This, this was a church that was excited about doing things. They were excited not just to do things, but to do things out of love for the Lord Jesus Christ. They were energetic. And the NIV, as we read earlier, translates this phrase, your work produced by faith and your labor prompted by love. You know, faith in, in Jesus ought to manifest itself in works. Remember, remember what James said, and I think it's so true. Listen to what he had to say. James said in chapter 2, verses 14 through 26, these words, he says, see if I can find it here. He says, what good is it, my brothers, if a man claims to have faith, but he has no deeds? Can such faith save him? Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food, if one of you says to him, go, I wish you well, keep warm and well fed, but does nothing about his physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. Someone will say, you have deed, you have faith, I have deeds. Show me your faith without your deeds, and I will show you my faith by what I do. 
you believe there is one God, good. Even the demons believe that and they shudder. But do you think they change? Absolutely not. They're still going to be demons. They're still going to be against God. He goes on to say, you foolish men, do you want evidence that, that faith without work, deeds is useless? Was not our ancestor Abraham considered righteous for what he did when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? You see that his faith and his actions were working together. And his faith was made complete by what he did. And the scripture was fulfilled that says Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. And he was called God's friend. You see that a person is justified by what he does and not by faith alone. In the same way, was not Rahab the prostitute considered righteous for what she did when she gave lodging to the spies and sent them off in a different direction? As the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without deeds is dead. Our love for God, our, our, our deep love for God and for his church, folks, ought to prompt us to labor. And that labor is a labor of love. You know, the great thing is, when, you're, when your labor is motivated by love, it really doesn't feel like work now, does it? It really doesn't. It doesn't feel like work. You know, Jacob, Jacob knew all about this. He knew all about it. In the book of Genesis, we discover a beautiful love story about Jacob and his, his beautiful wife, Rachel. The, 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 the well that was outside of Paddan Aram wasn't the best place to meet women, for the most part. There was a heavy stone covering the top of the well, and normally all the shepherds in the area would gather at the well with their flocks, and then together they would lift this stone off of the top of the well so that they could water their sheep. The stone was extremely heavy. So one day, Jacob is relaxing by the well, waiting for some of the guys to help move the stone when all of a sudden this most beautiful shepherdess he had ever set his eyes upon approached. You could kind of say it was love at first sight for for Jacob. So what does Jacob do? He jumps to his feet and single-handedly he pushes that massive stone aside, showing off a little bit, you know, hey, look look at me, so that Rachel could water her sheep. So Jacob spent a month mooning over Rachel and wanted desperately to marry her, but he, he couldn't afford the engagement ring, let alone the dowry that was going to take. And so he went to Rachel's father and he said, I will work seven years in return for your younger daughter, Rachel. And so Laban agreed. And the Bible says, so Jacob served seven years to get Rachel, but they seemed like only a few days to him because of his love for her. That was Genesis 29. Now we know the rest of the story. But really, isn't that a beautiful thought? Isn't that a beautiful sight there? You know, it, it should be the same way the church church loves the Lord. It should, we should be just like what, what Jacob was to Rachel at the church to the Lord. We to the Lord. In God's church, everyone has a job to do. Or at least they should. You know, we are called to work until Christ comes again. 
There is no such thing as retirement in ministry. We're not, we're not to, we, we, we should always be doing something for the Lord. And we are, are blessed here at Cornerstone Church of Christ to have many who are working and serving the Lord. Amen? Because we do. We have a lot of people. You know, each of us are called to a labor of love. So if you're not serving in some way, which I'm not saying you're not, but if you're not serving in some way, I want to prompt you to get to work. Because one of the characteristics of a great church is is to be excited and, and energetic. And we need to be getting to work. The second characteristic of a great church is also an elect church. A, what I would call, not just an elect church, but a chosen church. You know, Paul continues describing the, the great church when he says, in, in, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1 verse 4 there, go back there to that passage, he says, we know, dear brothers and sisters, that God loves you and he has chosen you to be his own people. He has chosen you, there it says in that scripture, to be his own people. Paul reminded the Thessalonians of their status as God's chosen ones. They were his chosen ones. And, and, and Peter, if you remember what Peter had to say in 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 4 through 11, this is what he talked about as far as being God's chosen people. Notice what it says there. As you come to him, the living stone rejected by men, but chosen by God and precious to him, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifice acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For in Scripture it says, See, I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen and precious cornerstone, and the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. Now to you who believe this stone is precious, to those who do not believe the stone the builders rejected has become the capstone and a stone that causes men to stumble and a rock that makes them fall. They stumble because they disobey the message, which is also what they were destined for. But notice what he says in verse 9. He says, But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy, he tells us. Dear friends, I urge you as aliens and strangers in the world to abstain from sinful desires which war against your soul. Very few issues cause more confusion and even arguments among Christians than the issue of election, which means to be being chosen by God. You know, the idea that the church is God's elect or chosen people runs all throughout the New Testament. We see it all through the New Testament. All Christians recognize this, but disagreements arise on how God's choosing us relates to us choosing him. And there are two lines of thinking. There's a Calvinist view and an Arminian view. The Calvinistic view includes the belief that election is unconditional. The Arminian view believes that election is conditional. So there are just two opposites there. 
unconditional election is the view that God elects individuals to salvation based entirely on His will, and we do not have free will to choose what we, what we're gonna choose. Conditional election states that God's elect, God elects individuals to salvation based on those who, through free will, end up choosing Him. They end up choosing Him. And I, I believe that mankind, that we are sinners, who have free will to either cooperate with God's spirit and be regenerated or to resist God's grace and be condemned and, and, and to perish. And, and it comes down to this. Second Peter chapter three, verse nine, he says this, the Lord does not wish that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. That's where God stands on the situation. Paul tells us in Romans 10, 13, this, he says, whoever will call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. You know, God wants everyone to be saved and, and He would choose all of us, but will only save those who call out to Him of their own free will. Because folks, we are not puppets on a string. We are not puppets on a string. God has given us the free will to choose whether we want to serve Him. And if you think about that, being a puppet on a string, is that really love? That he can just do us whatever, however he wants? Or is it that we get that free will and we can choose for ourselves? That we can choose for ourselves. That God loves us and chose us to be his people ought to inspire gratitude in us. To fill us with a sense of worth and, and value and, and motivate us to be the kind of people that he chose us to be. You know, to understand the significance of being chosen by God, just think of all the times that you weren't chosen. Think of all the times that you didn't get chosen. Maybe you were the uncoordinated kid in gym class. How many of you could fit that bill? Don't raise your hands, please. <laughs> Maybe you were the uncoordinated kid in gym class. You know, one of those kids who, who was always chosen last on the kickball team in gym class. And even then, only because there were there was no one left to say, well, well, I guess I got to take him, so come on over here. You know, maybe you didn't even make the team. Or maybe you were passed up for that promotion. Or you were turned down for a job. Or maybe you were turned down for a date. You know, you, you'll likely never be elected president or chosen to compete on the American Idol. But I got good news for you, folks. I got really good news. You were chosen by God. Unlike the kid in gym class, he didn't, he didn't shrug his shoulders and say, well, I guess I'll take him if no one else wants him. God didn't do that to us. He didn't do that. To be chosen by God means we are his first choice and we are his best choice. Amen? We are his first choice and best choice. So, so the question then is, why did God choose you? Was it because of your, your dashing good looks? What about your irresistible personality? What about your unparalleled wit and wisdom? And Ryan's not in here, but I was going to say, what about that nice looking beard and mustache? It's none of the above. God chose you because of his love for you. 
That's how God chose you. God loves you and has chosen you. And Paul said he chose us to be his people. And so what we need to do is we need to embrace our election by God and let it empower us to be the person that he wants us to be. That's what we need to do. And so the second characteristic of a great church is that we we are elected, we are chosen by God. The third characteristic of a great church found in this passage is that we are an evangelist. This church is an evangelistic church. You know, Paul has already praised the Thessalonians for their faithful works and their, their loving deeds. One important work of the church, and, and I hope you all will agree with me that one of the most, and one of the greatest and the most important works of the church is to share the gospel message is to share the good news. Paul writes in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 8 there, he says, And now the word of the Lord is ringing out from you to people everywhere, you know, even beyond Macedonia and Achaia. For wherever we go, we find people telling us about your faith in God. Everywhere they went, they were hearing the message. The Christians in Thessalonica were not only excited and energetic, and elected or chosen people, they were also an evangelistic church. They, they were constantly sharing their faith and they were constantly sharing Jesus. That's what they did. You know, some people might hear the word evangelism and have this negative reaction to it. You know, or maybe, you know, they, they, they think about the, the hokey pokey TV evangelist or the, the door knocking campaigns or the, that, that street evangelist who some of them think, well, he's, he's a little crazy. Or, or maybe you, you imagine guys like Billy Graham or Kurt Cameron and you just think, well, that's just not for me. I just can't do that. You know, I'm reminded of an old peanut cartoon. I love peanuts. As you, as you know, Lucy says to Charlie Brown, she goes, I would have been a great evangelist. I would have been a great evangelist. And, and Charlie Brown answers, is that so? She says, yes, I convinced that boy in front of me at school today that my religion is better than his religion. And Charlie Brown asks, well, how did you do that? And Lucy answered, I hit him over the head with my lunchbox. I just want to tell you, folks, that's definitely not the approach to evangelism. Don't hit them over the head with your lunchbox or that 50-pound Bible you have sitting on your coffee table. You know, but there, there, there are a lot of different ways that you can share your faith. You know, you just got to do it. We, we just got to do it. You know, you can tell your friends about the difference that, that, that God has made in your life. And this, that's an important one. That's what we call lifestyle evangelism. And what you need to do in order to be prepared for something like that is you need to sit down and, and think through your testimony. Because every single one of us in this room can have a testimony as to how we can share the gospel message of how the Lord Jesus Christ has changed our lives and how he can change your life too. And so we need to have a testimony. And you can, you can take one of your friends and, and pull them aside. I want to give you my testimony and I want you to critique it and, and tell me what I need to do better. 
But we can all have a testimony. And so we have the, we have the chance to be able to tell our friends the difference that God has made in our lives. But we need to be prepared for that. You can spark spiritual conversations with, with relatives and, and coworkers. You've heard the old saying, and you know, when you get in a group of family members, the two things we don't talk about is religion and politics. Well, I'm telling you, 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 your family members are going to go to hell if you don't talk about religion and you don't talk about what Jesus has done in your life. They can choose to accept it or not accept it, but that doesn't excuse you from the responsibility of telling them. We got to do that. Or you could simply invite your neighbors to attend church with you. We live in a culture where the majority of people identify themselves as Christians. But many of them are so disconnected from the church and the Bible that they have no idea what it means to live the Christian life. They have no idea. But many of them want to, believe it or not. Their desire is to do that. You know, according to a study done by the Barna Research Group, it says 25% of unchurched Americans say that they would be very likely to attend a church if a friend would just make the effort to invite them to come. Think about that. That's one in four of your friends who would be willing to come to church and hear the gospel if you just took the time to invite them to come. So... A characteristic of a great church is that they are an evangelistic church because, let me tell you something, guys, like a fire, if the church isn't growing, it's dying. Are we a growing church? Are we a dying church? We all have to answer that. Will we be around here in five years? Will this corner of Tallow Hill Road and Warm Spring Road still be here in five years, or 10 years, or 15 years. Like a fire. If you're not growing, you're dying. And we need to ask ourselves that. We need to follow the example of the Thessalonians and let the message of Jesus ring out from everywhere that we go. And finally, the the last characteristic of a great church that I want to share with you this morning is that A great church is an expectant church. Paul brings this section to a close and he reminds the Thessalonians in in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 8 through 10, this is what he says. He says, The Lord's message rang out from you, not only in Macedonia and Achaia. Your faith in God has become known everywhere. Therefore, we do not need to say anything about it. For they themselves report what kind of reception you gave us. They tell how you turned from, to God from idols to serve the living and true God. And notice what it says there in verse 10. And to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who rescues us from the coming wrath. You're looking forward You're looking forward to the coming of God's Son from heaven, Jesus, whom God raised from the dead. You know, the the Thessalonians spent their lives with, with an eye on the clouds and an ear waiting for the trumpet sound. You know, they waited anxiously for the day of Christ's return. And sadly, I think that many of us have lost this sense 
of expectancy, this great sense of expectancy. I think we've lost it somewhere. You know, the return of Jesus Christ is a vital part of God's redemptive plan for humanity. It's very much a part. History is not an endless succession of meaningless circles where you're going around and around and around, but a directed movement towards something great, this great event that's going to be taking place in the future. And that that great event is the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Christ's coming was foretold by the prophets. It was, it was proclaimed by the angels. And Jesus himself even promised it. He says in John 14, 3, he says, I will come again. In Hebrews chapter 9, verse 28, the Bible also declares, Christ will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. Are you eagerly waiting for him? Are we eagerly waiting for his return? You know, I think a lot of Christians are afraid to say no to that question. You know, they instinctively know that the answer should be yes. Of course, I'm looking forward to his return. But in our heart of hearts, are we really doing that? Is that really true? Is that really so? Too often, it seems that we're so caught up in our lives here on earth the immediate and temporal, that we hardly give a thought to eternity. You know, what does the Bible tell us about our life? Isn't, yeah, isn't your life just a vapor? You're here one day and gone the next? But what is eternity like? Forever and ever and ever and ever. But not the Thessalonians, though. They looked forward to Christ's return with eager anticipation and with great expectation. You know, the hope of his return carried them through troublesome times and spurred them on even more to do more loving deeds and and works of faith. And we're going to come back to this whole concept of the second coming in a couple weeks because... This is a reoccurring theme in Paul's letter to the first Thessalonians. In the meantime, may we never be, or we we will never, there's no question about it, we will never be the perfect church. At least not on this side of heaven will we be. But I think that by following the example of the Thessalonians, we can be an exciting and an energetic church we can be an elect or, or a chosen people, a chosen church. We can, if we want to, be an evangelistic church. And we can wait with great expectation for the Lord's come. We can be an expectant church. These characteristics are what help, I believe, to make a great church great. The question is, will we be that kind of church? Will we be that kind of church, folks? This last story I want to share with you is this. It's a story about compromising with a bear. A hunter had raised his rifle and took careful aim at this large bear. When he was about to pull the trigger, the bear spoke in a soft, soothing voice. Isn't it better to talk than to shoot? 
What do you want? The bear said. Let's negotiate the matter. So lowering the rifle, the hunter replied, I would like a fur coat. Good, said the bear. That is a negotiable question. I only want a full stomach. So let us negotiate a compromise. So they sat down to negotiate, and after a time, the bear walked away alone. The negotiations had been a success. The bear had a full stomach, and the hunter, well, he had his fur coat. (laughs) Do you know what Satan says to you? He says, let's negotiate. Let's negotiate. But folks, I'm telling you right now, there are some things that are not negotiable. We cannot compromise the church with the world. We cannot do that. Christ and His church deserve our very best and our utmost loyalty. These, folks, are the things that make a great church great. Amen? I hope and pray that our church and every single one of you aspires to that, to make this church a great church. Amen.